I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Third Coast Podcast. I'm Katie Mingle. We've got a brand new show for you this week, but first, a couple of quick things. Some of you may know that every other year we throw a huge conference for audio producers. Well, if you're planning on coming, here are a couple of reminders. The early deadline, as in cheaper deadline, for registration is August 15th. And there are some scholarships available, and the deadline to apply for those is August 20th. So don't delay. Go to thirdcoastfestival.org now and take care of business. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. And think to yourself, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's There's no place like home. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Mid pleasures and palaces, though we may roam, be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. A charm from the sky seems to hallow us there, which seek through the world is ne'er met with elsewhere. Home, home, sweet, sweet home, there's no place like home. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and sonic comings and goings we find all over the world. On the air, the web, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and then bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. It's a wonderful place, just somewhere where you know you're safe. You have your family, and they protect you also. A nice, warm place with family. Holidays, uh, beef and potatoes, that kind of meal. Uh, I think of air conditioning. (laughs) And I think of my little dog, Dexter. Uh, It's hard to explain for me in English. Lucy, home! The concept of home is, shall we say, a complicated one. Some people want only to get back home, others want only to leave it, while still others struggle with the many shades of gray in between. There's no denying the power, the push and pull it has on us one way or another. Today on ReSound, stories of people who are far away, physically, spiritually, or emotionally, from the place they call home. Stay with us. To thee I'll return, overburdened with care, The heart's dearest solace will smile on me there. No more from that cottage again will I roam. Be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. When home is a war-torn country, leaving it can be a matter of survival, not choice. But that doesn't make it any easier. When the war in Vietnam ended in 1975, thousands of Vietnamese came to America. Nguyen Quy Duc was one of them. His family moved to Maryland when he was 17, and he soon left for the West Coast. Here is his story, Home is Always Somewhere Else. My uncle just died. It was cold even inside the funeral home as the monks prayed. A heart attack killed him at 75. He was just 45 when he left Vietnam, coming to America, responsible for a wife, three kids, a stepmother, and me. I was 17 and without my parents, so at the end of the Vietnam War, my uncle took me with him. Saved my life, really. An hour after we cremated him, a blizzard turned Maryland where he lived pristine white. It was a strange landscape. 
had left my uncle soon after I came to America and drifted around California. As a kid, I grew up in a time of war. Before I became a teenager, America had already come to my country. Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, or The Doors. That was what I understood America to be. But the music came with men in army fatigues. Hundreds of them tore throughout town in central Vietnam, their trucks noisy, dusty, their rifles a scary sight. The year I turned 10, things really changed. Ted, the Lunar New Year had arrived, but the sound of firecrackers celebrating the Year of the Monkey in 1968 was replaced by gunfire and explosions. North Vietnamese troops invaded several cities in the south. In the city of Hue, where our family was on holiday, thousands died in a month of house-to-house fighting. Thousands disappeared, among them my father. It would be 16 years before I saw him again. I carried on with school, but for years my father's absence loomed over us, and the war grew worse. When the war ended in 1975, an estimated 3 million Vietnamese had died. America was mourning the 58,000 it had lost and would come to relive the nightmare of defeat for years. Vietnam plunged into extreme poverty. Welcome to America and welcome to Camp Pendleton. At this time, I need each of you to move to the Quonset huts that you were assigned to. About 100,000 Vietnamese ended up as refugees in America, including my uncle, his family, and myself. The churches, charities, and families that sponsored us did all they could to welcome us and create physical comfort. What they couldn't give us was a sense of home. At 17, I was riding the bus to school and always feeling the gaze of others. It was as if they could see the shame of defeat on my back and the guilt of having left my parents and a sister behind. For the first couple of years, We had no news of home, but we eventually learned to live with our pain. People I knew were getting married, building new families, new identities. At some point, we began to accept that we were Asian Americans. Time passes, we spoke more and more English, and then came time to apply for American citizenship. A sensible thing to do, but we did it with a measure of shame. Being American seemed a betrayal of our roots, our nation our real selves. Kính chào quý thính giả. Đây là chương trình 30 phút thông tin văn hóa và nghệ thuật Việt Nam do tổ chức Việt Nam truyền thông chủ trương và thực hiện. Chương trình này được phát thanh mỗi trưa chủ nhật từ 1 giờ đến 1 giờ 30 trên băng tần KUSF 90.3 FM. I ended up in Northern California with a radio show for the Vietnamese that had formed a community here. We were settling down roots in our little Saigons, replenished by the arrival of boat people, those who risked their lives escaping from communism. Watch one of their popular entertainment videos now. You wouldn't know these are people who'd been in labor camps who'd lived in near hunger in the 80s and who'd escaped on boats across the Pacific. It's estimated that between a third to half of those who left this way died at sea. After 12 years in prison camps, my dad was sent home and four years later came to America with my mom. My sister had died. She too was cremated, her ashes placed in an urn and left with monks in Saigon, now renamed Ho Chi Minh City. My parents settled in San Francisco. We learned to be a family again. They never thought of going back to Vietnam. I was desperate to. They were afraid of all sorts of danger. Prison and the years of communism had done terminal damage. Hello, 
I went back to Vietnam nearly 15 years after coming to America. No American dream could hold me back. Home was home, and I pined for it. I found former classmates and the old home, but the country had changed, and I had changed. In a temple in Ho Chi Minh City, I cried and cried. I'd found my sister's ashes. I sat with the monks for a while, and then I brought her ashes to the United States. The family was whole again. The Vietnamese in America still carry some wounds, but there's a generation born here that's graduated from college. In corporate boardrooms, on TV and in government offices, there are Vietnamese faces. In their homes, they've set up altars with pictures of the ancestors, remembrance of the dead and the past. I can't stay away from Vietnam. Since leaving, I've been back 20 times, sliding back into the old culture, like a jewel thief into his favorite velvet gloves. 30 years ago, I followed an uncle and crossed the Pacific. The ocean separated us from our birthplace. Millions of Vietnamese have died. Millions have survived. Some in one country, some in another, and some of us cross back and forth. A month before he passed away, my uncle visited Vietnam for the first time in 30 years. The family thinks the long trip, the dire conditions, and the terrible shape of his childhood home finally did him in. My aunt thinks of bringing his ashes home in a few years. Maybe he's there already, in the way that we Vietnamese think of how souls can travel to a birthplace. I fly back and forth, the ocean beneath the wings of the airplane, beneath the clouds. I'll visit my uncle's ashes wherever. The ocean doesn't separate. It connects my two homes. Home is Always Somewhere Else was produced by Nguyen Quy Duc for Crossing East, a series exploring Asian-American immigration. For a link to the Crossing East website, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Are you far from home? Write a letter to us at our home base, Third Coast Festival, 848 East Grand Avenue, Chicago, Illinois, 60611. One of our favorite things is, get this, writing back to you. And we promise we will. Or, of course, you can also send us an email to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org or connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. There's really no excuse not to be in touch. I, even though I have no savings or I have no money, the important thing I want to see my, my daughter and my mom. So, if I win the lotto, I'm going home. <laughs> The paths that immigrants pave to get to this country are well-worn and rutted. Whether the goal is to seek better opportunities, follow dreams, or escape bad circumstances, people struggle to get here. It can be especially difficult for women, who often have to leave behind children and aging parents. Alma supports her family back home in the Philippines by taking care of someone else's family in New York. Producer Delaney Hall tells her story. It's karaoke time at the Christmas party of the Damayan Migrant Workers Association. Our first contestant of the night for the Damayan's domestic workers idol is Tita Alma, and she will sing Uptown Girl. The group organizes Filipina nannies, housekeepers, and homemaids for the elderly. These women usually work long hours in New York and New Jersey with few days off and this is a rare chance for them to come together and relax. Stir-fried rice, noodles with shrimp, and a whole roasted pig are spread across three tables. Alma takes the mic. She's a slight woman in her 40s, with long brown hair and a round, inviting face. Today, the women compete not just for the title of domestic worker idol, but for prizes, too. First prize is an iPod Nano, and second prize is a care package known as a Bollock Bion box. In Filipino, Bollock means to go back, and Bion means hometown. In the last couple of decades, the word has developed a double meaning. It describes overseas migrants coming home to visit their families. It also describes the giant corrugated containers packed with food, electronics, toys, and clothes that pour into the Philippines around the holidays. The Filipino government estimates that a quarter of their employed population works outside the country. More than half of those migrants are women, and around 30 to 40,000 Filipinas do domestic work in the New York area alone. Many of the women at the party, including Alma, can't go back to see their families for Christmas. Flights are too expensive, the distance is too far, and some of them are undocumented and can't travel freely anyway. So they gather together to eat and sing and compete for the chance to send a Bollock Bion box home instead. Such parties are rare, since these women work long hours and start early. On another day, Alma is caring for Julie Yastashak. She's giving Julie her afternoon medication. I'm going to make to take her medicine. You want orange juice? Or water? I have a little bit of water here. Okay. I'll give it to you, my love. Here. Alma, dressed in light blue scrubs, hands a couple of pills to Julie, a delicate elderly woman with thin peach-tinted hair. She's 86 and spends most of her days in a wheelchair, gazing out the window of her Manhattan apartment. Family portraits and photos cover the top of her piano, 
but she doesn't have a husband or any children. Most of her family passed away or lives out of state. So she relies on homemaids like Alma to care for her. Full-time assistance costs around $1,000 per week, an amount that Julie covers with her social security check and a modest pension from her years as a secretary. Speaking of the angel. Alma lost her regular nannying position over a year ago, and she's been working part-time jobs since then. She asked that I withhold her last name since her immigration status is currently under negotiation. This weekend, she's filling in for Julie's regular caretaker. The two haven't known each other for more than a few days, but they're already comfortable together. She's the nicest person, but she's difficult. Yeah, that's why I, like, I can appreciate her, because I know she'll only take so much, and then she'll lower the boom. When you get older, you get more dissatisfied with, your, with life and yourself. And you, take, you can't take it out on anybody else. But somehow you try. I've always been aware that it, old age brings with it some very trying circumstances. And I never, and I never, not, I don't know if it's just me because I'm losing my mind or what. I forget things all the time, so I'm still, I'm 44 years old, so don't blame yourself. <laughs> Drop it. Drop it. <laughs> Be happy. <laughs> Julie depends on Alma for almost everything. Alma makes her meals, watches TV with her, lifts her in and out of bed, on and off the toilet. She bathes her. I think how many people in the world have to live, earn their living that way? cleaning somebody else's dirty body up. And she doesn't seem to mind it. To find somebody who is willing to, to work with you is something to be so grateful for. Whatever else happens in life, nothing is going to compare to that. Alma has been doing domestic work since 2001, when she moved to New York City from the Iloilo region of the Philippines. She left behind her five-year-old daughter, her mother, father, and four brothers and sisters. She hasn't seen any of them since she migrated. Here, she makes ten times as much as she could back home. And with Alma's support, her mother has retired, her daughter now attends private school, and several nieces, nephews, and cousins have gone to college. But she's traded taking care of her family in person for taking care of them financially. And the natural order, as she sees it, has been disturbed. In her family, children usually care for their parents as they age. I remember my father used to, every morning, used to wash all the blankets, pajamas and everything, every morning he's washing it. Because my grandfather make pee in his bed. So one time I asked him, why are you doing that? And he told me, oh, I'm doing this because... I want my children, when I grow old, to take care of me, too. But Alma was half a world away when her father grew ill. And when he died three years ago, she couldn't even go back for his funeral. She called him before he passed away to ask for his forgiveness. But it's clear that she still feels a lot of regret. So in his last days, every time he was in the hospital, every time the doors open, he says, like, Ning! Is that you? They call me Nining. So every time the doors open, he will say that because I have a good relationship with my father. You know, I'm more close to my dad than my mom. Even so, Alma feels responsible for her 76-year-old mother, and she may not be able to care for her either. She plans to hire someone to help, paying with the money she makes caring for Julie and others like her. Scholars call this the global care chain. Raising and feeding children, cleaning the house, taking an elderly person out for a walk, tasks that might have once seemed intimate and local can be exported, imported, and outsourced to women like Alma. Among the countries of the developing world, the Philippines has become one of the world's largest providers of care. A vast labor export system propelled Alma into Julie's Manhattan apartment, and now Julie is connected to a family on a small island in the Philippines. She might not think about her role as a link in this chain, 
but Alma is keenly aware of it. Every time I work with people, I consider them as my mother. I respect and give them extra care that knowingly that I cannot give it to my mom. I cannot I can't give it to them. That is unique to think like that. That's that's the way of my thinking. It's like see she's paying me. Some other people they are working but I put my heart on my job. That's the thing that they cannot buy. That's right. So that's basically it. Employing other people to care for our young, our infirm, and our elderly is an old story. Women have cared for members of other people's families throughout history, from the nursemaid Deborah in the Bible, to nannies in colonial India, to slaves recruited as childminders in the antebellum American South. These figures are also ubiquitous in pop culture, and many nanny narratives lean toward the extremes. In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun, and snap, the job's a game. Mary Poppins, for example, blows in on the east wind and magically whips the bank's household into shape. A spree, it's very clear to see that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. But of course, it's not all spoonfuls of sugar. In the film The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, an evil nanny attempts to seduce her boss, destroy his wife, and steal their children. If something happens to my mommy, you take care of me. Of course I would. And their destruction. There's only one woman for me. That's all you need. Her triumph. When your husband makes love to you, it's my face he sees. Get out of our house. These extremes reflect either a wish or a nightmare, a response to the often unacknowledged anxieties employers may feel about hiring a stranger to do a job that blends love and labor and professionalizes something intimate. As Alma points out, you can hire a person to care for your aging relative, but you can't pay them to feel any love as they carry out their daily duties. Such two-dimensional depictions also tend to leave out a big chunk of the story the lives that domestic workers leave behind. But Alma thinks about that all the time. When was this, like three years ago? Alma digs through a box of photographs at her home in Elmhurst, Queens. It's a one-bedroom apartment on a quiet street. She shares it with two Siamese fighting fish and a roommate, another Filipina domestic worker who comes home only on the weekends. Uh, This is her ninth birthday. Alma's relationship with her family relies on phone calls, emails, and packages. She's watched her daughter, Whiny, now 15, grow up in these photographs. Oh, she's blowing her candles, her cake. In the Philippines, I spent like $600 just for a party on food and everything. <laughs> oh, this is my cousin. I, when I left Whiny... Uh, this is my first student. I sent her to college because she was watching Whiny. Alma's cousin Florence is known as Whiny's second mom, and Lilia, her grandmother, is her third. And then there's number four, Vima. She took over once Florence got married and had a child of her own. She lives next door in Iloilo and helps with the cooking and laundry. Alma pays her about $20 a month. Life for Alma has been hard recently. She separated from her husband, a Filipino-American, after he allegedly abused her, and their estrangement has complicated her application for a green card. Without a steady job, her debts are mounting, and she now owes her landlord about $5,000 in back rent. In tough times, the distance from home feels more acute. Lately, it's like everything is on my mind. This week, it's a waste again because I don't have a job. I'm not making money. You know, it's like, if you're busy, you don't even remember to call them. <laughs> now, I the last time I spoke with my mom is like Saturday, a Sunday night. And I'm, I'm avoiding her because I like, I need to send money, but there is no money to send. Alma recently borrowed $100 from her friend to pay for a prom dress for Whiny, and there are much bigger expenses looming. 
Four years of college in the Philippines will cost close to a million pesos, around $23,000, an amount that's completely out of reach for most Filipinos earning a salary at home. When Alma went to college in the 1980s, her family's rice business was doing well enough to cover the cost. Her mom and dad hoped she'd help in the family store when she finished with school, but she wanted something else. There's no freedom there, <laughs> so I ran away. I went to... Uh... I went to Manila. Manila is a sprawling concrete megapolis, and it remains a hub for aspiring migrants from all over the country. The export of Filipino labor has become a big business, and one of the nation's most reliable sources of foreign money. Last year, migrants remitted an estimated $18 billion, about 11% of the country's total gross domestic product. Eight and a half million overseas Filipino workers now live and work in 220 countries around the world. Alma was in her early 20s when she first arrived in the capital. She found work as a secretary and then ended up in Hong Kong, where she worked as a nanny and homemade for seven years. She started dating a man named Wayne and got pregnant with Whiny. He worked at a fruit stand, and they came from the same region of the Philippines. When he was a child, he likes to fight. He's not handsome. The face, like, <laughs> so many scratches. But the body, it's like solid. He had a sense of humor. We get along together, mm-hmm. you know. When Whiny turned two, Alma returned to Iloilo and lived with Wayne's family. But there wasn't much work for her, and they never had enough money. She felt claustrophobic living with her in-laws, and she says that Wayne, who was still in Hong Kong, was cheating on her with other women. Alma and Wayne were among the second generation of Filipinos to migrate under the government's labor export program, which has its roots in the 1960s and 70s. When Ferdinand Marcos became president in 1966, the Philippines' foreign debt hovered around a manageable one billion U.S. dollars. But the Marcoses were big spenders. When 1,200 pairs of shoes were discovered in Imelda's closet in 1986, the world was, well, appalled and flabbergasted. This is a rare As this History Channel documentary makes clear, those shoes were a symbol of the Marcoses' extravagance. Throughout their 18 years in power, they funded massive projects with loans from the United States, the World Bank, and the International Monetary Fund. The country owed $28 billion when the People Power Revolution finally ran the couple out of office. But by then, a system had been built. Exporting people became a relatively cheap way to keep up with near-crippling debt payments. It was easier than cultivating the local economy. The government created a number of agencies to oversee and facilitate the migration process. Last year alone, these agencies helped to send more than one million people away. That's close to 3,000 people every day, boarding airplanes bound for somewhere else. The government recruits heavily, as in this report on TV Patrol, one of the country's most popular news shows. An announcement scrolls across the bottom of the screen, calling for 100,000 new workers to be deployed to Israel, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia. The Commission on Filipinos Overseas is a big orange building in central Manila. Among other duties, the commission helps to educate people about the good and the bad of overseas labor. Golda Myra Roma works in the Policy Planning and Research Division. She says that most Filipinos now think of migration as the best way to improve their economic status. But that is not always the case. You don't always end up with a good, very productive, and very good life overseas. So we have to tell them this is the reality so that they will better understand the true nature of what migration is. It's an option for them because we play by the market because that is the reality in the world, not just in the Philippines, but in many, many other countries as well. But make sure we tell the public that when you get out, you pass through the legitimate way. Do not go through the irregular means of migration. 
But for all the commission's efforts, many people do migrate irregularly, including Alma. She's become what the government calls a TNT, or Tago Natago. The phrase translates roughly as hidden or lost in the crowd. From Iloilo, she moved away to Taiwan, where she stayed for a couple of years, and then in 2001, she decided to make a bigger move. One of her cousins worked as a nanny in New York and promised to set Alma up with a similar job. She applied for a tourist visa, as it's impossible to get a work visa to do domestic labor in the U.S. She wore her lucky color when she went for an interview at the U.S. Embassy, all red from her shoes to her blouse. She answered the officer's questions carefully, concisely, and at times dishonestly, claiming that she had no intention of working in the U.S. He approved her. But Roma, of the Commission on Filipinos Overseas, explains how big a risk Alma and others like her are taking when they work without a permit. They don't have the legitimate documents to stay there, so they can be deported, arrested, harassed anytime. Number two, uh, in terms of remittance, they are not so participatory in projects such as diaspora philanthropy because they're afraid that if they pass through the money in the formal banking channel, they will be caught. This last point is especially important to Roma, who helps to run a diaspora philanthropy program for the agency. She and her colleagues encourage migrants to invest not just in their families, but also in poorer parts of the country that need help. She says $10,000 can build two schools, and smaller amounts can fund business startups. Money from Filipinos abroad often makes a bigger difference than any other source of foreign investment, but it also makes the Filipino economy vulnerable. If the dollar collapse, or if there's a an inflation, or if there's a, a problem in the exchange rate, our economy is directly affected. And that goes to show again that the economy of the Philippines rely on overseas Filipino workers for more or less maintaining the foreign exchange rate. Alma has never had much disposable income, but the money that she sends home has trickled down to the wider Iloilo community. Until she lost her job last year, she and her mom used to give away 100 bags of rice every Christmas to poor families in the region. To keep the dollars flowing and to help families and workers adjust to the realities of transnational work, the Philippines maintains an Overseas Workers' Welfare Administration. Today, its lobby is full of people. They're milling around, talking on cell phones, and fighting for available taxis when they pull up outside. A beleaguered-looking bureaucrat flips through a list of names. The administration is knee-deep in a huge repatriation effort. Since fighting broke out in Libya in mid-February, they've helped almost 9,000 workers find their way home. Good afternoon, ASMD, please. Thank you. Upstairs, Maria Lourdes Reyes works in the administration's investment management office, and she helps to arrange pre-departure orientation seminars for workers. Good afternoon, si Director Maluto. Sino to? Romel, meron ka pang libro nung naalala mo yung 2004 na Mafia? Reyes was also a vice chairperson last year for an annual prize that the agency gives to foster cultural acceptance and stability among families split apart by migration. It's called the Model Overseas Family of the Year Award, and it anoints two transnational families with a trophy and a cash prize of 600,000 pesos, about $14,000. So we have specific criteria. One would that the family must be together. That means despite the distance and despite the long years that they've been away, they were able to maintain the togetherness because one of the effects of labor migration is the erosion of the family values. But then we would like to showcase that there are families that stick together despite the challenges of being away, being separated for so long. Some of the workers have been away for 20 years, 22 years. It might seem counterintuitive to say that a 22-year, continent-spanning relationship constitutes family togetherness, but the awards criteria redefines what it means to be a functional family. Sharing meals, a bed, and the small daily routines of life in the same house isn't part of a transnational couple's life together. But shared sacrifice is, 
shared commitment to the economic betterment of the family, and in the case of the award winners, the wider community. Headed to the airport in a taxi bound for Iloilo, I'm tracing the same route that Alma traced 10 years ago, but in reverse. As buses and jeepneys rumble by, Sarah Vaughn's cover of Close to You comes on the radio. From 8,000 miles away, Alma has maintained remarkably tight ties with her mother and daughter back home, but she'd never qualify for the Model Family Award. Her child's father is completely absent. The last she heard, Wayne was in Saudi Arabia. Plus, Alma has never made enough money to build a school in her hometown. The government hails its migrants as Bagom Bayani, the new heroes. In recent years, two-thirds of these new heroes have been women. Daughters, mothers, and sisters who leave to do domestic work overseas. And while their income finances the country's development, their exodus represents a vast social change within the country. The globalization of care has changed the shape and nature of family life back home. Alma's family lives outside of Iloilo City on the island of Panay, about an hour by plane from Manila. From the airport in Iloilo, Alma's mother Lilia, her daughter Winey, and her cousin Florence drive an hour through rural farming country to get back home. Water buffalo graze in bright green rice paddies, and small towns line the two-laned road. Some houses are made of concrete and have tin roofs. Others are made of woven bamboo and wood. The mayor of Alma's town later tells me that you can always tell who has a family member working abroad by the house. The concrete homes almost always signal an OFW. <laughs> Lilia and Winey live in a white concrete home with a big fenced front yard. They're right on the main drag in Benate, which is bustling. The town sits right on the coast and has a population of about 30,000. Trucks were a pass laden with sugarcane, or packed with people bound to and from Iloilo City. Cousin Florence lives nearby with her mother, father, and five brothers and sisters, but she spends a lot of time with Alma's mother and daughter, and she's here for the afternoon. She's 32, a tiny woman, about five feet tall, with big almond-shaped eyes. At 76, Lilia pulls her white hair into a tight, neat bun. Her smile is brilliant white when her dentures are in, and she moves in a slow and stately way. She is never in a hurry. Alma's mother often slips and calls her granddaughter by her faraway daughter's name. With her long brown hair and shy smile, Winey does look a lot like Alma in childhood pictures. She's 15, and her thumb is perpetually affixed to her cell phone keypad. This house was built year 1978. Lilia and her husband Jorge built the house with earnings from their rice business. Then, with help from Alma, Lilia retired, expanded the house, built two new rooms, and put in tile floors. A television and small sound system are tucked against one wall of the big, bright living room. A slightly mildewed Bible perches on a Bible stand, and a glass cabinet full of stuffed animals that Alma sent to Winey from New York sits in another corner. In Winey's room, three framed images of the Statue of Liberty hang on the walls, and the iridescent pink prom dress that Alma borrowed $100 to buy practically glows from her closet. Alma sent some gifts, and the family sits down to open them. Winey rustles through a pink-striped Victoria's Secret bag and pulls out perfumed lotion, a number of lacy bras, and a white, thin-strapped summer dress. Grandma Lilia is a conservative Catholic and a member of the charismatic renewal sect. She and Alma don't always agree on what's appropriate for Winey, and she's looking sidelong at the hot pink underwear that Winey pulls from the bag. Winey later tells me that Lilia took the sundress away. This is the day 
This is the day that the Lord has Lilia was born and raised in Bonate, and she and Winey are surrounded by family here. As they sit on the porch, picking malungai leaves off a stalk to cook with chicken for tonight's dinner, first, second, and third cousins come and go. Lilia asks Winey to help out with dinner. Winey, you wash the tomato, very well, and then slice. Chop, chop. Chop, chop. Chop, chop the tomato. Lilia, Florence, and Winey have an easy and teasing relationship with each other. Florence has known Winey ever since she was a baby and began caring for her when Alma first migrated to Hong Kong. She taught Winey how to ride a bike, nursed her when she got sick, and met with Winey's teachers when she was caught cheating. She seems somewhere between a mother and an older sister to Winey. In exchange for her help, Alma supported Florence through college. But for all the phone calls and wire transfers, it's hard for the family to picture Alma's life. None of them has even been to Manila, and Winey has little sense of what her mother's life is like overseas. New York is like a country. She's always saying, uh, she's no always saying that she has no money, no money at all. She has no work. Yeah. <laughs> a guitar for Winey just isn't in the budget right now. Since Alma lost her regular job, money has been tight here in Bonate. Luxuries that the family might have been able to afford in the past are out of reach, at least until Alma finds steadier work. Families with a relative abroad can usually depend on financial stability, especially when the relative has a skill, like nursing. Girls are often pushed to enter these exportable trades, but Winey's not interested. She's scared of needles, and she doesn't want to migrate anyway. She has other plans, as Florence knows. A policewoman. She wants to become a policewoman someday. My grandmother wouldn't want me to do. I allow. She wants me to be a nun. A good girl. <laughs> Winey and Lilia are clearly fond of each other, but they also argue a lot. Lilia says her granddaughter doesn't help out around the house enough, and Winey says her grandmother is crazy. And my grandmother is insane. <laughs> Florence thinks their disagreements are rooted in generational differences. They can't understand each other in the way Winey and Alma might be able to. Winey calls Florence her second mother. And as for her grandmother, Lilia? 100th mother. <laughs> She's so far. <laughs> you are always joking? No, I'm not joking. I was just kidding. <laughs> you are the one who washed the plate, huh? I don't want to so wash the plate if you, I gotta do are. it. Excuse me for a while. It's Alma, calling from New York. Winey stands in the living room and speaks with her in Ilongo. Five minutes into their conversation, she begins texting with a friend as she talks. Before Alma can speak with her own mother, the phone cuts out. For Winey, Alma is a voice on the phone. She can't remember a time when her mother lived at home, and at this point, the transnational arrangement seems unremarkable. One of her teachers at the private Catholic school she attends told me that a third of their students have at least one parent abroad. So in many ways, Winey is just an ordinary Filipina teenager, splitting her time between home, the downtown internet cafe, and school, spending time with friends, bickering with her grandmother, and speaking almost every night with her mother thousands of miles away. Lilia's social life in Banate revolves around church and her prayer group, a dozen older women from town who gather once or twice a week to worship. Santa Maria ang Eloisang Diyos, sigaampo mo kami ng mga makasasala. While there are questions about who will care for Lilia when Winey goes to college, a 
concern that Alma, Waini, and Lilia herself all expressed, it's clear that Lilia lives within a dense fabric of friends, relatives, and church sisters. They check in on each other, stop by for visits, and loan each other money or rice when the budget gets tight. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord has made. We will rejoice, we will rejoice and be glad in it, and be glad in it. Winey and Florence call Lilia Mrs. Friendship, and after a lifetime in the town, she does seem like an unofficial mayor. But even with all her friends, church sisters, and godchildren, she claims there are over 100, Lilia is getting older, and she needs help around the house. So Alma has hired Vima, Lilia's cousin, to assist with cooking and cleaning. From afar, Alma pays her 800 pesos a month for her work. That's around $20. And she fills the gap that opened when Alma left for New York. Vima is the last link in the care chain that began far away in Julie's Manhattan apartment. Vima is 50 years old, with brown hair parted down the middle. She's short and strong, and lives nearby in an unfinished cinder block house with a tin roof. Tonight, she's chopping garlic and squeezing limes to make chicken adobo. Chicken adobo. Suka. Calamansi. Onions. Vima and Lilia have a long history together. Lilia became an orphan as a toddler, and Vima's mother took her in and raised her. In exchange, when Lilia got older, she worked as a maid for the family. Later, when Lilia married and her rice business started making money, she hired Vima to help out, asking her to collect payments from customers around the region. And then when Alma left and Lilia retired from her business, Vima took over as a part-time caretaker for her and Waini. Carmelita, a next-door neighbor and local teacher, comes over to help translate for Vima, who speaks only Ilongo. When, when somebody in the family gets sick, she's the one who always brings them to the doctor. Like the, the husband of Nang Lilia, when the husband of Nang Lilia died, before he, he died, he gets sick and was confined in the hospital. She's the one who takes care of uh, And also Waini, when Waini is sick, um, she's the one who... Uh, brings Swiney to the doctor. I ask Vima if she has a partner or companion that she lives with. I'm old maid, single. <laughs> See what have Lilia done to her life? <laughs> now Lilia made her single forever. Ikaw with Yali ang makasasana ang naglaon ng iban. Why do you blame Lilia? Because he was She's so busy that she wasn't able to find one for him. <laughs> I have just known it now. <laughs> We've been neighbor for a long time, but I have discovered a secret. <laughs> Is that true? Yes. <laughs> oh. Maybe they're too busy or what? Taking care of others' children. You see, there's always a cost. There's always an effect after the cost. <laughs> Carmelita is clearly joking, and lots of factors might be responsible for Vima's single status, including maybe Vima's own preference for independence. But nevertheless, Carmelita has hit on an uncomfortable truth for many women. It's hard to balance work and family. And sometimes, when your work is caring for other people's families, that struggle can be especially poignant. Vima takes care of Alma's family, while Alma takes care of families in the U.S. Each has made a living at the work, but has given something up in exchange. Vima works for a family that she's known forever. Those who migrate, like Alma, work for strangers. The mothers who employ them in America have left a gap at home, too, not because they've migrated, but because they're working full-time, and yet American culture still expects them to bear the bulk of family care. So they look for help, and women like Alma step up to meet the demand. Back in New York, she's getting ready to start a new job. Hi! <laughs> I'm still cleaning. Come on home. Okay. She'll be caring for a woman in her early 80s who lives in Waterbury, Connecticut, 
and she'll live in with her for five or six days a week and then return to the city on the weekends. She's feeling cautiously optimistic about having a full-time position again. Maybe I'm going just I'm going to start saving like maybe a hundred dollars a week, uh, starting from now. And you know, I, I even though I have no savings or I have no money, the important thing I want to see my my daughter and my mom. So if I win the lotto, I'm going home. <laughs> I bought a dollar yesterday. <laughs> One dollar, mega lotto, mega million. <laughs> Could you go back permanently at some point? Yeah. Of course, I was planning to do that. You know, who, who wants to stay here and be miserable here in America? For all her hopefulness, Alma has a lot of hurdles to clear before she can return to Banate. She won't know for another six months if her green card application is approved. There's still the $5,000 she owes in back rent. She could be evicted. Whiny's starting college in another year, which will cost close to $23,000 by the This is a song for a mother. Mother of mine. When I am grown, I'd like to give you all of my own. I'd like to give you what you've given me, mother, sweet mother of mine. Mother. As she listens, Alma looks at a photo of her daughter and mother, running her finger along the edge. Uh, you know, she sings that song, when, you know, when she remembers the important thing of a mother, because, you know, she grew up without one. Uh, her mother died early, and she don't feel the love and the care of her mother. You know, some, that's why uh, every time she sings that she cried. I'd like to give you all of my own. I'd Back in Banate, Waini is growing up without Alma. And if she's hurt by her mother's absence, then Alma suffers with her. It's true that Alma chose this life. She chose Hong Kong, Taiwan, and New York. And her travels have offered her broader experiences and bigger paychecks than her mom ever had. But it's also true that her choice was compelled. The odds of finding a job in Banate that could support her mother in retirement and put her daughter through college are slimmer than the chances of winning the New York Mega Millions. So for now, Alma's employers rely on her labor here in New York. And her family relies on her money back in the Philippines. And next week, she'll start saving for the day when she can return and care for her own. Mother of mine, when I am grown, I'd like to give you all of my own. I'd like to give you what you've given me. Mother, sweet mother, oh my. Oh, hallelujah. Circle of Care was produced by former ReSound producer Delaney Hall. Delaney's currently working on documenting and mapping the underground music scene in Austin, Texas. Find a link to Delaney's Austin music map at our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Are you ready now? Yes. Say goodbye, Toto. Yes, I'm ready now. Then close your eyes and tap your heels together three times. And think to yourself, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home.
Resound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. ReSound's intern is Lily Bowie. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Dojo, a full-service digital agency. On the web at doejo.com. Dojo, we fuel ideas that grow. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, and the Menaki Foundation. This program is partially supported by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. And my heart is anywhere you are, anywhere you are. You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. Stay connected with us through Facebook and Twitter, or by signing up for our email list at thirdcoastfestival.org. If you like what you heard today, consider writing us a review on iTunes or sending us a few bucks. As always, thanks for listening.